Welcome to the Real Truth Matters podcast. I'm Dan Harder, your host. The RTM podcast is all about showing you how to live in biblical spirituality, demonstrating where the Bible and real life intersect. And now, here's Real Truth Matters founder and director, Michael Durham. Thanks for joining us today. We truly appreciate your listenership. In last week's podcast, we began a discussion of the fight of faith. The fight of faith is the battle to believe what God has revealed objectively and subjectively. God is not a silent God. The Apostle John demonstrates a communicative God when he begins his gospel with the sentence, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Christ is the revelation of God, the communication of God, the reasoning logic of God. God reveals himself. And as I have previously quoted A.W. Tozer, God has not grown silent. Here's what Tozer said. I believe that much of our religious unbelief is due to a wrong conception of and a wrong feeling for the scriptures of truth. A silent God suddenly began to speak in a book, and when the book was finished, lapsed back into silence again forever. Now, we read the book as the record of what God said when he was, for a brief time, in a speaking mood. With notions like that in our heads, how can we believe? The facts are that God is not silent, has never been silent. It's the nature of God to speak. The second person of the Holy Trinity is called the Word. The Bible is the inevitable outcome of God's continuous speech. It's the infallible declaration of His mind for us, put into our familiar human words. End of quote. The Bible is God's Word to us. However, it is necessary for the Holy Spirit to illuminate the Scriptures to make it have life and power. In us, the act of illumination is very subjective, and it's God speaking to you directly. You can say literally, truly, that if God has illuminated the Scriptures and made it alive in you, God spoke to you personally. And in most cases, when that happens, it's the commencement of the fight of faith. You must now fight to believe what God has revealed to you through his written word. This is the primary, if not almost exclusive way, the Lord speaks to his people. And I've made it no secret that I believe that God can speak immediately and directly to you apart from the Bible. And there are biblical directives and guidelines to protect us from false subjective experiences and help us to discern God's genuine voice from any impersonator. Whenever and however the Lord speaks, it often creates a crisis of faith. It's this crisis I'm calling the fight of faith. In Genesis 17, God spoke to Abraham, which immediately created this crisis of faith. In our last episode, we saw how Abraham struggled to believe what God said, that he and Sarah would have a baby. Abraham was close to the age of 100, and Sarah was nearing 90. 
When Sarah was young in her childbearing years, she could not have children, yet here she was, an older woman, beyond the biological ability of childbearing, and God said she would have a child. Well, Abraham responds by falling to the ground and laughing and imploring God to remember Ishmael as the child of promise. Then, at that moment, Abraham's logic kicked in, and he saw Ishmael as the only way God's promise could come to pass. In other words, Abraham believed God would make him the father of many nations and that the world would be blessed through him. He did believe that. He just didn't believe in the method by which God would do it. So it wasn't that Abraham was faithless or wholly given over to doubt. No, he first had to determine if he heard God correctly, which in mercy God repeats the promise of Sarah to have a child. Now, Abraham had to fight, struggle, and contend to believe. Last week, using Abraham's Genesis 17 encounter with God, I demonstrated the first two stages of the fight of faith. The first stage of the crisis is when God reveals truth about the reality of a particular situation. It's the Word of God that commences the fight of faith. The second stage is the assault of the visible on the invisible and the temptation to doubt that comes from demonic suggestion. In this stage of the battle for faith, your own logic and reasoning war against the revelation of God's Word. It argues why your interpretation cannot be correct or that such could never come to pass. The arguments used are rational, sensible, and therefore believable. Couple human wisdom with the fiery darts of the wicked one sent against us to lead us to unbelief towards God, and the battle is fierce. These flaming arrows are sourced from the spiritual realm. They come against us by one whose whole purpose is to get us to believe the lie about God. As I said last week, unbelief is not the absence of faith, but faith in someone or something else other than God. In the story of Abraham, we see this same battle. God has spoken, but good old common sense kicks in, and the enemy quickly shot his arrows of doubt at Abraham's heart. No doubt, every Christian listening to me has experienced this. And for some of you, it's now that you're experiencing this. God has promised to love you to the end, but you look at your lack of faith and disobedience. That seems to happen more than you think it should. And by the way, I don't know any Christian that believes sin should happen anytime. So if you only sinned once a month, you would think you're sinning more than you should. And if the truth is told, you're sinning more than you should because we should never disobey God. And so with that mindset, your conscience works to condemn you, and Satan whispers to the ailing conscience that there's no way you could be a true Christian. So the question is, who are you going to believe, God and his promise to love you and preserve you, or your reasoning and the devil? That, my friend, is the fight of faith. Or perhaps your faith struggle is about God's promise of provision to meet your needs. Right now, you're having a difficult time making ends meet. Will you believe God's promise that he will care for you as he does the birds of the air? Listen to Matthew 6, 25 and 26. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. 
Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And Matthew 6.33, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. You may not need to believe God's promise for a baby, but you're in the fight of faith no less than Abraham. Well, let's now move to the third stage of the fight of faith, and that is the submission of the visible to the invisible. The only way you can neutralize Satan's darts is by using faith. The only valid contrast to human reasoning and logic is God's reasoning and logic. So you have two choices, faith in God or faith in the devil. In other words, faith in the truth or faith in a lie. The visible reality, that is the information your senses take in, demands that you believe what you see, hear, and feel, and nothing else. The bills are due, and you have no money. Thus, human deduction concludes that God is not as good as He claims. Oh, we don't say it that way. No, we dress it up and say things such as, I'm not good enough for God's promise to work for me. Or, my faith is just not strong enough to believe God for that promise. Or, God only does those kinds of things for preachers and missionaries. But all of those statements, even though they appear to put the responsibility on you and your weak faith, are actually statements about God's trustworthiness. Remember, your struggle to believe God is always more a statement about God than it is you. It's saying that you do not find God credible enough to believe. Otherwise, you would trust what he says. So, what do you do when you know God has spoken? You choose not to believe the lies based upon the visible. You don't deny the visible reality. That would be insanity. Instead, you believe God's interpretation of reality, his perspective on it. Yes, it is true. Money's tight right now. The bills are high and the funds are low. That is reality. But it's not all there is to reality. God's perspective or take on reality is that he has the cattle on a thousand hills and he can sell some of those cattle and give you the proceeds. He has the provision to meet your supply, but more than that, he loves you more than you can experience. And if you genuinely need it, then you will have it. My friend, that is the logic of faith. That's what you need to believe, and that's how you ought to think. Every need is an indication of God's will. It's His will to meet our needs according to His riches and glory. Thus, faith says, watch God work in your need. Need is the invitation, or better yet, the announcement of God's arrival to work to your good and His glory. Now, human logic fights back, and demonic wisdom challenges. They don't go quietly away. One or both retaliate and remind you of someone you know whom God didn't come through and deliver. Or at least it appeared that he didn't. They died, or they lost their home, or a thousand and one stories or testimonies can be rehearsed. But these are not the end of the matter. The Christian that dies gains according to the word of God. Therefore, that promise came to pass. 
And a bank may have foreclosed on a home belonging to a Christian, but that doesn't prove God failed to meet their need. We don't know what was the greatest need in the lives of others. We often don't know what our own greatest needs are. Perhaps the believer who lost their home had been a poor steward of their finances, and the Lord is meeting the greater need, which is teaching them the importance of stewardship and responsibility. Human logic just cannot account for all contingencies. But divine logic can, and it does. So, in this stage, you must bring your reasoning and submit to the reality of God's Word. That's what Abraham did after this encounter with God in Genesis 17. The Apostle Paul reveals and demonstrates Abraham's fight of faith in Romans chapter 4, verses 19 and 20. And not being weak in faith, he, Abraham, did not consider his own body, already dead since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith. Now, do you have a problem understanding what Paul is saying? Because you read the account that Paul's talking about in Genesis 17. Obviously, Abraham was weak in faith. He did consider his own body already dead in the deadness of Sarah's womb. Here's precisely what Abraham said to God in Genesis 17, 17. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old, and shall Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child? So what is Paul doing when he states the opposite? Well, very simply, Paul is not showing the beginning of Abraham's fight of faith, but he's demonstrating Abraham's fight to believe and its victorious outcome, which to me is very encouraging. It shows that God doesn't judge us on where or how our faith begins, but on how it ends. So, what does Paul teach us about Abraham's fight of faith that acts as a precedent for our fight of faith? And here it is. You must act out your faith in any way you can. And we can do that in three different ways. And we do so by Abraham's example. The first thing we are to do to act out our faith and fight the fight of faith is to refuse to believe our doubts and fears. As I said last episode, believe your beliefs and doubt your doubts. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 4.18 that that is exactly what Abraham did. It says, Abraham, who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations. According to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. He was given an extraordinary promise, biologically speaking, an impossible promise. but. Quote, contrary to hope, in hope believed, meaning he determined to hope in God, even though it defied what he understood about biology. The intellect says such a thing is not possible, but contrary to that, Abraham chose to put his confidence in God. And so Paul writes, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. So what did Abraham do? Abraham countered his human reasoning with a reasoning that is biblically informed. He didn't check his brain in to exercise faith. No, 
Instead, Abraham let his thinking be influenced by the spiritual as well as the physical. He'd walked with God long enough to learn that God and his faithfulness will always endure. He had seen God's power manifested, and so with sanctified reasoning, he concluded that human rationale minus the spiritual and invisible input was insufficient. God did have the ability to keep his word, thus, contrary to hope, in hope he believed. The second thing is we are to wake confidently in prayer. In chapter 18, the Lord appears to Abraham along with two angels. Their appearance was of the appearance of men. Once again, God communicates his promise of Isaac. This time, Abraham does not laugh. Sarah does, but Abraham doesn't. Instead, he communes with God and the two angels, and afterwards, he intercedes on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah demonstrating prayer, keeping his heart before the Lord. Now, this is extremely important. Prayer is a means to practice fellowship with God, and it's also the means to experience God. God, who is the object of our faith, be real with God if you're experiencing weakness of faith. He already knows it. He wants you to be honest and embrace your inadequacy. Look to him. He's the author, the finisher of your faith. And so trust him for your faith. You can trust him with your faith. And then thirdly, you can act out your faith by obeying God's word, and doing all you know God requires of you. We see this also in Abraham. Earlier in the conversation with Abraham, the Lord commanded Abraham to circumcise himself and all the males in his employee and family. And this Abraham did. He obeyed. It is in obedience to God that we actually experience him. If we obey, we're not grieving or quenching the Holy Spirit, and thus we're more sensitive to His leadership. And that, my friend, always encourages faith. Well, the fourth and final stage of the fight of faith is the victory of faith. And here, the struggle ceases. But how do you know when the struggle ends? Well, it ends when worship commences. And worship starts when your heart is sure of God's promise being fulfilled. Paul again demonstrates this in the life of Abraham in this encounter with God in Romans 4 and verse 20. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. Worship happens when questions, concerns, and fears give way to possession. You now possess in your heart the thing promised. And that's when worship begins. Long before you possess it in your hand, you possess it in your heart. And that, my friend, is the way of faith. You do not yet have the fulfillment of the promise in your possession. But faith is the proof or the evidence in your heart that it's real and that it's yours. That's Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. By faith, it's already yours. It's come to pass, and it will be no more real when it does happen in time. A 19th century man of faith named George Mueller said, quote, Often I have praised him beforehand in the assurance that he would grant my request. The thing after which we have especially to seek in prayer is 
that we believe that we receive, according to Mark eleven twenty four. What things soever ye desire when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. But this I often find lacking in my prayers, when, however, I've been enabled to believe that I receive, the Lord has dealt with me according to my faith. End of quote. Not even this servant of God, George Mueller, known for his ability to believe God, could believe God without God. He confessed his need to be enabled to believe, lest you think that you must have some mystical experience, and that's what George Mueller's referring to, something that's dramatic that causes your faith to grow. Let me remind you that on another occasion, Mueller said of himself and his faith, It is true that the faith which I am enabled to exercise is altogether God's own gift. It is true that He alone supports it and that He alone can increase it. It is true that moment by moment I depend upon Him for it and that if I were only one moment left to myself, my faith would utterly fail. Mueller said it wasn't by some crisis or some experiential mystical event. No, he simply looked to God. He kept his eyes of faith focused on God, knowing that if God didn't intervene, his faith would fail. That's why worship is the pivotal sign that your faith has endured the battle and persevered unto victory. Worship of the object of our faith, God, is due in part to our knowledge that our faith is dependent upon God. Not only is it dependent upon God for the answers to prayer, but it's also dependent upon God for its existence. If you display genuine faith in God for something, whether it be for your salvation or a need being satisfied, It's because God has worked in your heart the faith to trust Him. It's He that delivered you from the enemies of your own reasoning and the lies of hell. Faith not only believes God for the need, it believes God for faith's survival and health. Abraham worshipped God for his future son Isaac, but surely his worship was also for the ability to trust God for Isaac. Worship explodes when the battle has ended because assurance commands the heart. And yet again, we see this in Abraham, Romans chapter 4, verse 21. And being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. The victory of faith does not mean that the devil will never fight your faith again about a particular promise. No, victory doesn't mean you'll never again be challenged. That didn't even happen to our Lord Jesus. The Bible tells us, Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Jesus' victory over temptation did not end. With his wilderness experience, he was tempted many times during his life, especially in the Garden of Gethsemane. But victory begets victory, and that's so helpful for us to know. If you overcome in this battle of faith, you'll have a greater understanding of God's faithfulness, a longer record of fidelity to his word, and to you will be the result. 
We all have to fight the fight of faith, and just like Abraham, we may not start out so wonderfully, but it's not where you start that matters, but where you end. All of us think we would prefer to have perfect faith and never have to fight and struggle to believe. However, looking back over my journey in grace, I no longer think that way. The most profound and pleasing outcome of the fight of faith is the level of experience and knowledge of God. Indeed, that is the best result of the crisis. What I've learned about our Heavenly Father as a result of the crisis of faith has been so sweet. It's drawn me closer to Him. It's taught me more of how much He truly loves me. I used to struggle much that God really did love me, but no more. He's proven over and over again that He sincerely loves me. I am the object of His affection, the one to whom all the promises of God in Christ are yea and amen. I've also learned myself, oh yes, much more, and it's cemented in my heart forever that not only can I do nothing without the Lord Jesus, but that I can't even have faith without Him. He's become my faith. Faith has become more than some attitude of my heart toward God. Instead, it's taken on the nature and essence of His person. Jesus is my faith. He is my confidence. Friend, it's hard to explain. But I not only have trust in Him, but He is my trust. He works in my heart to ensure my faith. He nurtures it so that there's nothing in which to place my confidence apart from Him. My faith in Christ and Christ are inseparable. More now than ever, my faith does not seem like mine. It seems like it's His faith. I say that because I've done nothing to have faith or increase it. Faith is the gift of God, and He's the finisher of it. It's always been the work of the Lord Jesus and me, and I can trust Him to continue that work. I pray that as you contend for the faith to trust God for what He's promised you, that you will come to learn that Jesus is everything. He is your faith, and if you have Him, you have faith. In our next episode, we will learn more about faith and our exercise of it, so please be back next week. We release a new podcast weekly every Tuesday, and you can subscribe to it through any major podcast platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play. We're also on other platforms for your listening convenience. And if you would, please leave comments and rate the podcast on those platforms. The higher the rating, the more visible the RTM podcast will be for others to find and listen. Well, on behalf of all of us here at Real Truth Matters, may the Lord richly bless you with His love in a real and tangible way. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Truth Matters podcast. I hope you can see that Christianity is profoundly experiential, but always based on the objective truth of Scripture. If you have questions or comments, please send them to our email address, web at realtruthmatters.com. That's web at realtruthmatters.com. Real Truth Matters podcast, dedicated to biblical spirituality, 
demonstrating where the Bible and real life intersect.